Hi, and welcome back to TPI's podcast, Two Think Minimum. It's Monday, October 1st, 2019, and I'm Tom Leonard, Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at the Technology Policy Institute, and today we're excited to talk with Catherine Tucker. Catherine Tucker is the Sloan Distinguished Professor of Management and Professor of Marketing at MIT Sloan. She's also Chair of the MIT Sloan PhD program. She's received numerous awards. I'll list some of them because it's very impressive. The NSF Career Award for her work on digital privacy, the Aaron Anderson Award for an emerging female marketing scholar and mentor, the Garfield Economic Impact Award for her work on electronic medical records, the Paul E. Green Award for contributions to the practice of marketing research, the William F. O'Dell Award for most significant long-term contribution to marketing, and the Informed Society for Marketing Science Long-Term Impact Award for long-term impact on marketing. She's also the co-founder of the MIT Crypto Economics Lab, which studies the applications of blockchain and also a co-organizer of the Economics of Artificial Intelligence Initiative, sponsored by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And last year, she was also a visiting fellow at All Souls College, Oxford. I'm joined today by Sarah O, oh, who's a senior fellow at TPI and who will join in the conversation. Catherine, you were one of the first economists, I think, to study issues involving the use of data online and the related policy issues, privacy issues, also leading into antitrust issues. And I think it's fair to say you've made some of the most important contributions. How did you get interested in this subject? So I became interested in it because I was in my dissertation as a PhD student in economics at Stanford. I was studying network effects. And if you go back in history all the time to when I was doing my PhD, at that time, economists were interested in network effects. Why? Because it was the time of the Microsoft case. And indeed, my advisor for my dissertation, Tim Bresnahan, was one of the chief economists in charge of that antitrust inquiry. So I was excited about network effects. And at the time, we were just really thinking about network effects in terms of hardware and software. And so they were very technology-based. And I thought I wanted to do something new in my dissertation and research. And so I started looking at the idea of data sharing, how there's data sharing in the economy, and whether or not that could lead to network effects. Now, of course, when you're trying to measure things as an economist, you're always looking for what we call exogenous shocks or stuff that changes your ability of that phenomena. And in my case, I noticed that if you're looking at data sharing arrangements, one of the biggest shifters was actually privacy regulation. And so I started off being interested in privacy really as a measurement tool. That is, it shut off network effects. It meant I could measure network effects accurately. But then I realized at some point that it was a lot more interesting to actually study privacy rather than network effects. And that's how I got going on this topic. What are a few of the things that you've learned along the way and that your research has taught you that uh, people might find interesting? And there's a lot that's interesting there. <laughs> so let's maybe start on the sort of straightforward right. technology sort of area. And then we can, we can delve into some other things too. One of the first papers which I'm excited about 
was one where we looked at the sharing of data in healthcare systems. It was there I really started to actually measure the effects of privacy regulation. And there were sort of two consequences there. First of all, understanding that in our new data economy, the nature of privacy regulations are going to play an important role in understanding how a technology spreads. The other thing about that research, which I always hesitate to emphasize because it's a little bit, um, it always feels a, a little bit strong, is that one of the applications of electronic medical records we were looking at was how they affected the ability of hospitals to do neonatal care. And I think often in our technology debates, we don't really discuss enough about the benefits of technology. And so I think it was important we were measuring the benefits of technology there. But one of the reasons I got passionate about this topic is in my research, what we were showing was that these privacy regulations, incredibly well intended by inhibiting the adoption of medical records in contexts where there were high-risk babies, where the data was going to be particularly important, it was actually costing babies' lives. So I've, that's sort of first result I want to highlight. From there, I've gone on to study network effects and data and perhaps less emotionally fraught areas, especially in online advertising, and we can definitely talk about that more in depth. Let's go back to the, ele the electronic medical records. Maybe explain a little bit more what, what the mechanism is, why privacy regulation might result in more deaths. Of course. So if you think about a typical birth, let's be clear, it's not going to be an issue. So for most of the people listening to this, they had a typical birth. Their pregnancy was straightforward. They gave birth easily. Their biggest concern was, you know, picking out the right stroller and car seat. However, for a segment of the population, they are undergoing what we call a high-risk pregnancy. And in this, there's a whole sequence of potential maternal complications. Now, the reason electronic data and digital technologies becomes important in situations where you have maternal complications is that women go into labor randomly. And you need to make sure the right data is communicated to the doctor, who a medical team who's on standby then. If you do not have that ability to transmit the data about a high-risk pregnancy, it's far more likely that the complications will not be properly understood by the medical team. So, you know, a typical example there would be something like placenta previa, where there's a placenta blocking potentially the passage of the baby communicating the existence of such a complication is incredibly important. And, you know, if you think about when you, the challenges of a mom have been having to communicate this and the complications are really quite high. And so even digital records of that are very important. Now, if you have privacy regulation in place, this is going to have two effects. First of all, it's going to make it more costly and difficult for the hospital to adopt these kind of technologies. The other thing which is going to happen is there are going to be limits on how data is shared across different medical teams, which are also going to make the technology less useful. So that's where it was that I saw this restriction on privacy regulation at the state level. Again, I'm saying very well-intended regulation, actually having this consequence of potentially costing babies' lives just because you couldn't get the data 
at the right time, at the right place. Looking forward, what do you think of the, well, maybe talk a little bit about what your new research projects are, and what, what you think are the important unanswered questions in the area of privacy? We have so many unanswered questions. Let's just start with some. So I think one of the things I've noticed in my career is that as an economist, it is relatively straightforward to measure costs of privacy regulation because you can measure how technology gets inhibited, how economic outcomes change. What we've not done well at so far as economists interested in measurement is trying to measure any positive benefits from privacy regulation. And I think that's always a little bit frustrating because, of course, we want to understand the trade-offs. And when you can measure the costs very easily, but the benefits are more nebulous and difficult to measure, it's difficult to do that way up. So that's one area I think we need to be exploring. Another area where I think perhaps, which sort of feeds onto this, where I think perhaps we have not yet made careful enough distinctions is questions of data longevity. So, so much of the privacy debate in Washington is about advertising data. And advertising data is probably the most short-lasting data that you can imagine. The fact you're looking for that particular pair of shoes today, that's not going to come up and haunt you as a piece of data in 20 years' time. However, there are some pieces of data which potentially do have the ability to haunt you in 20 years' time. And I think we have not yet reasonably grappled with a world where data lives forever and that potentially when people create that data or agree for that data to be shared, that it may have a long-term impact and they may have very different preferences in decades to go. So I think that's, again, maybe a reflection of the fact that DC has been so focused on advertising data, but the question of longevity of certain types of data just seems to me a more first-order thing for us to be worrying about. Have you thought much about a taxonomy for longevity? So when you were talking about health, I was thinking about biometrics, and that's kind of a unique single data set for a person. But that's a little bit different than vulnerable personal information about preferences or of the mind, behaviors. Is that appropriate to be thinking? Should we be bucketing different types of data into categories? Is that too hard of a exercise? Well, generally economists sort of like sniff at the idea of doing matrices or, or buckets. But I, I think Amalia Miller and I came close to it dangerously close in a paper we wrote for a National Bureau of Economic Research book in that what we said is that, look, if you're going to worry about data privacy, there are three things in particular you should worry about. Number one is data persistence. That is, as you say, if you're biometric data, you can't change that. Your shoe preferences, they can change, but biometrics, I can't change that. The second thing you need to think about is, well, what is the potential danger of exposing this data? What potential downside is there? So again, biometric data, if it gets revealed that you have potentially a vulnerability to Hodgkin's disease or something potentially very expensive, that would be data you'd be very worried about. 
the last category, which is a bit more unusual and out there, but we think is going to be quite important going forward, is, is there a potential for spillovers for the data? Right, that is, if you think about how we often talk about data, there's an idea it's just tied to one individual. But often now our data is actually informative about other individuals. So your biomarker data, I don't know if you've got siblings, but it would tell me a bit about them too, right? And that's another category we should think we should be worrying about in terms of saying what data is worrying and what data is less worrying. And so you can sort of see we're getting towards bucketing, but not quite there. So you just uh, mentioned advertising data, and you know it's part of the current debate that's kind of surrounding the tech industry in general. There seems to be a lot of people who are attacking, maybe that's too strong a word, but have trouble with the, with the whole advertising model on which some of the major tech platforms are built. What's your view of that advertising model, and is it something that we should be worried about? I don't worry much about the advertising model, and I'll give you some reasons why. I think both why I'm not worried and why I think it's become a huge debate. The first thing to say is that the advertising-supported internet, if you think about it, is just amazing. I have a graduate student at MIT who's calibrated the value which is created by, say, the Google platform or the Facebook platform in terms of unmeasured contribution to the economy each month. And it's just tremendous. So I would love to tell you about Abinacia's research in a little bit more detail. I should highlight that it was actually done with my colleague at Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT too. And what he found is that he used a variety of survey techniques to calibrate that the value for Facebook for the average user was around $50 a month, which obviously if you aggregate up over the whole year is quite a large amount. He also found values such as $3,600 per year for the value created by digital maps. And so I found it just fascinating. And these were sort of a very large series of online experiments that he did to come up with these numbers. But I do encourage you to read the PNAS article. That's the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. It was just published. And it's really fascinating for actually calibrating the unmeasured contribution of digital platforms to the economy. Right. But that also brings up... Uh Another interesting question, I mean, some of the people who criticize the advertising model say, well, these platforms should, you know, switch from an advertising model to a payment model. Now, given these large numbers of the value, would Facebook make more money charging rather than using an advertising model? This is really interesting. Uh, I'm going to sort of say two things. The first is I'm always haunted by the research I once did into paywalls. And this was in the early day of paywalls, but it was looking at the effect of a newspaper just putting in a blunt paywall on its website. And we measured the day before, day after, a 98.7% drop in traffic. And so I think we have these large sort of figures of values created by these services, but it's easy to forget that in a world where people are anchored on the idea that a service should be free, it's going to be really hard to make them pay for it. And so I'm always haunted too by the example of WhatsApp. 
And the reason I'm haunted by it is that I teach pricing at MIT. And WhatsApp has always been a terrible thing for me in teaching because it means that my students sort of seem to think that they don't have to have any plan for how to make money and their startup's going to get inquired by Facebook for billions of dollars. But if you think about what's, what a WhatsApp actually managed to do, was it managed to anchor a lot of people on the idea that messaging should be free. And since then, any attempts to actually raise prices beyond zero have been really quite problematic. I always remember I had this student, an executive education student, like earning a really quite large amount of money, explained to the best of the class how in order to not pay WhatsApp $1, he uninstalled, reinstalled the app, somehow contacted all his contacts to tell them he did that. And he was so proud of the hours he spent saving this $1. So, you know, we have these estimates of the value created, but I think it'd be naive to say that we can easily somehow switch to a pricing model just because when we're in a world where everyone's been educated that the just price or the right price of the service is zero, any attempt to raise prices is just going to lead to massive switching away to other platforms. And it's just not commercially viable, I guess. What do you think of the argument in Apple versus Pepper? One of the arguments was Apple's app store prices these apps so low at zero or 99 cents that they must have monopoly power because they can price it at zero. How does that square with consumer preferences? Is that even compatible that you could argue that, that a firm has pricing power to price at zero, but consumers want that price? (laughs) Well, it is strange, and perhaps it sort of reflects some of the troubles of trying to think through these issues in a two-sided platform. I think what is certainly correct is to say that consumers, for whatever reason, have been anchored on the price of zero. That does not seem to reflect any monopoly power. That just seems to reflect the fact that, for whatever reason, consumers have got used to the idea of paying zero for an app. I just want you to go through the sort of uh, mentally the process that say you were looking for a tape measure app and you're looking at tape measure apps and there's one that's one dollar and there's one that's free and the one dollar one looks better it's got better reviews you're still going to be tempted to download that one at zero because we're just like amazing you feel stupid for paying a dollar if there's one that's zero I think that's really the mechanism you're like well I can make do with something less good because it's zero and I'll feel stupid if I pay a dollar. You know, it doesn't sound to me like monopoly power. It just seems that a lot of people who could pay more have got angst the idea that apps should be zero in price, at least initially. Are you surprised at the prominence of tech issues in the, in the political debate? Not, so, not an economics question. But not <laughs> an economics question. Um, so it's just so strange for me, quite honestly, because... I've been studying these things for nearly 20 years now. And to be honest, people haven't been very interested for a long, long time. And what's more, especially in the area of advertising, the idea that advertising or the nature of advertising or advertising competition 
could even be part of the political debate, I think is just amazing if you think where we were seven, ten years ago. There's always been, a, in certain circles, a distrust of advertising, even before these debates, right? I think this certainly has, I think that's right. So there's always been, and maybe this is one of the things which gives it so much color, that you have here, when I start teaching marketing, I always have to do a bit of marketing of marketing because most educated people have this sort of natural sense of distaste, right? It's sort of a bit distasteful advertising in some sense. I've never clicked on an online ad. I'd somewhat distasteful. It must be about persuading people to buy stuff they don't need or can't afford or that kind of narrative. And so I think certainly there's always been a slightly sense of distaste around marketing. But I think what's new are these questions of competition between different marketeers, right? It's never been an industry where questions of competitive structure or market structures ever really been an issue. And suddenly you have all these lawyers who don't seem to be aware of this entire marketing literature where we've thought about this for decades, pronouncing on the topic of advertising. And that's, that's quite strange for me, honestly. Right, right. Do you think there's a market failure, I mean, a significant market failure in the, mar- in the market for privacy? I think there is a paradox, which is almost the opposite of a market failure in the provision of privacy. And it's this paradox, which is befuddling. So it's what we call the privacy paradox. Let me just give you some background. I have it down here as a question. (laughs) So let me tell you why I think this is the thing that we need to be grappling with rather than calling privacy a market failure. So we have this situation where people say they're very concerned about privacy and then they appear to behave in ways which suggests that they do not care about privacy. And I have a paper about this called The Privacy Paradox, which is all about where we asked MIT undergraduates for really some quite personal data. We asked them to share with us the contact details of their friends. And initially we just asked them, and then the students who cared about privacy really displayed how they felt about this question in that not only did they refuse to give us data, but sometimes they'd give us false data with expletives in it, where they'd sort of say, F-U researcher at mat.edu. That's my, that's my friend. And they did, they used the entire word. So it was quite, anyway, so it was quite clear that they were angry. But then we gave the other half of people a slice of pizza. And the moment we gave the slice of pizza, then the people started behaving in a way which was inconsistent with their stated privacy preferences. And in particular, the people who said they cared really a lot about privacy stopped swearing at us and just started handing over the data. This is why thinking about market failure in privacy is so confusing and difficult. Because first of all, we have to wrestle with this essential privacy paradox in that I can't think of an area where people's stated preference is so far away from their actual behavior. And then what do you gear policy around? Do you say, oh, it's the stated preferences which matter. We need to protect people from themselves. I was a little bit worried about that kind of argument. Or do we say, then we should actually look at how people actually behave 
but then we'll probably be in a regime where there's no privacy protection given, even for the most sensitive data, and that doesn't seem quite right either. And so I think until we wrestle with this difference between behavior and stated preferences, it's far too early to be talking about whether there's a market failure and provision of privacy. Because a market failure just rests, if you think about the economic failure of economic theory on the actually being preferences. Of course, economists typically, at least historically, have preferred revealed preferences, behavior. We have. We have. <laughs> and, and I, of course, have that. In, you know, being an economist, that's how I tend to think. But what was amazing about this paper, I wrote about, as I say, the pizza and the MIT undergraduates, is it actually has been embraced by both sides in that there's a sense that, you know, you're showing, yeah, no, people really don't care about their privacy. They, even MIT undergraduates give it away for pizza. And then the other argument is, of course, if even MIT undergraduates give away their data for pizza, it shows that we really, really need lots of privacy regulation. So, you know, as economists, we tend to go towards reveal preferences, but... And another yeah. argument that people make sometimes is that, well, they give away their data, but that's because they really, really don't understand what's being done with it which probably applies less to MIT undergraduates than others. So yes, that, that is probably not true in, in this setting. And that's one of the interesting things about it. The people who express the highest stated privacy preferences, as I say, they evidently understood in the no pizza condition what was going on, and that they got quite angry with us. But pizza managed to distract them. Right. Um, so you can actually see it's not a question of information now, it's just that people do seem to behave differently when pizza's on the line. So let's move a little bit to the related subject of antitrust and competition, which and the role of data in that, which you've also written a lot about. So there are a lot of a lot of people now saying that, you know, a basic problem, first of all, that there's a competition problem with tech platforms, among other things, but particularly tech platforms, and that, that it is it is rooted in the large amounts of data that these companies have, which basically is a barrier to entry by any competitors. You've written about that, so what's your take about, on that? As I say, I've written quite a few articles on this topic. If I was to summarize one key insight I, I think I have, is that when one's thinking about data and whether or not it could pose a barrier to entry or potentially be some kind of essential facility, the first order question needs to be, how unique is that particular data? Because we talk about data as a whole, as though it was all a homogenous mass of competitive advantage. Whereas in reality, most data is not very useful for advertising. And most data is not unique. The lens I encourage people to adopt in these articles is thinking about a person's digital footprint. And given a digital footprint, which is your behavior of browsing online, how likely is it that only one firm will have insight into a particular occasion where it might be good to advertise to you? You know, so if you're sort of thinking about how this would work, if you think about a situation where you've got a leaking pipe, and your pipe leaks, and you suddenly need a plumber, then you're probably, with all that water gushing down, not going to spend long browsing on the internet. Maybe only one website will ever get to know that you needed a plumber and have that opportunity of advertising to you. 
On the other hand, if you're buying something like a car, if you're anything like most Americans, you will spend some time online. You'll research it, you'll try and figure it out, you'll watch videos, you'll go to a lot of different websites. So many different websites will have the insight that you're in the car, you're an auto intend, as we call you, or you're likely to buy a car, and therefore the data won't be unique and won't be necessarily a source of sustainable competitive advantage. So I think, again, having that sort of taxonomy in mind to help you think when, when is data going to be unique, therefore, when might it be a source of competitive advantage? And I found that so much helpful than this sort of general discussion of somehow big data being a source of barriers to entry. Because I, I just think that's wrong to lump everything together in that way. I mean, even if you happen to have some unique data that has value, you went to the expense of getting it, of investing in it. Shouldn't you get the advantages that come from that? Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because if you think, if you are able, let, let's just imagine a unique, <laughs> a uniquely valuable data set. You know, if I was in any market, what I'd like to do is I'd like to find unique data on people booking last minute charter jets. Why is that? Well, each single lead there is worth thousands of dollars, right? But the moment you set that up, and I set up a successful website, which is where people go for their last minute charter jet bookings, is the moment there's going to be huge competition of other firms trying to get access to that unique data. Well, I take your, your point that, you know, maybe you should enjoy the benefits of having built a platform which gets access to this unique data. I also think one has to remember that the moment you're in that kind of position of competitive advantage is the moment you put a bullseye on your back for other people to try and work out how also to compete. Well, but the people who are most worried about competition problems in the, in the tech sector, I think we need to do a lot more to uh, address them. They would say that the, the, at least the large tech firms are just firmly entrenched and basically the likelihood of some competition to them, at least under current conditions, is very, very unlikely. And therefore, we need to do more to facilitate new entry, etc. So I guess my starting question is, how firmly entrenched are these platforms? And is that a problem? I mean, aside from the fact that you read unfavorable articles virtually every day, the people who actually use these platforms seem to be relatively satisfied, I think. But, you know, maybe. So I'm going to make well, maybe a controversial point, but shouldn't be, is that what really frustrates me in this debate is the idea of talking about tech platforms. If you analyze Google and Facebook, there's a whole different set of economic phenomena you have mm -hmm. to understand. Amazon is a completely different set of phenomena too, as well for Uber. And so one of the first things I'm going to fight against is this idea that somehow we can make a statement such as tech platforms are entrenched, because I think that misses a point. Now, if we go through them one by one and consider them individually, I could go on forever in this, this, this podcast, so stop me at some point. If you think about Facebook, they are rather vulnerable. And one of the things, you know, I worry about statements made about the entrenchment. And one of the reasons I worry about it is that I've written a variety of papers about how weak network effects are in the social media space. And if you think 
the world is sort of littered with examples of social media platforms coming in and coming out. And I think there are two main pressures for their vulnerability. First of all, network effects, at least on the user side of social media platforms, tend to be very local. That I know my friends, I communicate with them on Facebook, but the moment that they're on TikTok, I'm going to notice they're gone and I'm going to shift immediately. The second reason we're vulnerable on social media platforms is that network effects aren't, aren't just local. They're permeated with sociology. And it's always weird for economists to talk about sociology. But there's a phenomenon which I, I find interesting, a bit removed from economics, which is that of a disassociative group. And the idea is we're always resistant to being on a platform where there are disassociative groups. And I'm sorry to tell you this, Tom, but you and I are probably disassociative, right, for a social media platform. You don't want us on it. I think you'd do a lot better, right? She, you, <laughs> you, you can't see us, but she's a lot younger, but, you know, certainly not as disassociative as us. And that's a constant challenge, right, in a world where you have a phenomenon such as TikTok where people like me and Tom are not present, therefore it's a lot cooler, then that also make these network effects quite fragile. And so that, that's sort of why I worry about Facebook. I don't know that I like, I'm sorry, like being called that cool, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's true. <laughs> How about I just insult myself? I am so disassociative. I'm an older female who drives a minivan. No one wants me on any social network. So <laughs> anyway, so therefore, therefore we sl so network effects are quite fragile there. Now, if we move on to other platforms such as Uber or Lyft, then again, we have fragility of network effects, but from a different source, right? And there the source is to do with something we call multi-homing or the fact that any time you're using the Lyft or the Uber platform and the price is too high, you're tempted to check out another platform. And so in this world where we're constantly hopping between platforms, again, entrenched incumbency is, is, is difficult and problematic. I should probably stop before I go on for too long or insult any more people in the room. Just to ask about crypto, since you're also head of a crypto group at MIT, there has been some concern that Facebook's Libra project is taking advantage of network effects that they have on their platform. What do you think about that project? I personally think it seems like it's fragile, but the success rate, I mean, they'll have to prove whether um, they can launch it. But is that fear warranted? There's so many competitors in that space. I should just be clear here that my co-author, Christian Catalini, is actually the chief economist on that project. Um, he's doing a wonderful job there. And so I probably shouldn't say anything. I'm not going to say anything critical, uh, you know, because I know how hard he's been working. Look, I think what you see with that project is that you often make claims that somehow by being a large tech platform, it gives you the ability to leverage your data or leverage your platform to help you go into other markets. And the challenges that project's facing right now, I think dispel that. 
And it reminds me a little bit about, do you remember when Google tried to launch a social media network to compete with Facebook, Google Plus, and how it never, you know, how it never went anywhere? I, of course, hope that Christian will succeed, but I think it's certainly a telling example of you can't sort of assume that just because you have a, a large user base, it's going to help you necessarily move into other markets. Okay, last question, but it's uh, kind of a big one, I guess, in the policy world. Do you think the United States needs a privacy law? And if so, what should it contain and what should it not contain? <laughs> <laughs> I think personally one of the merits of the U.S. is that we do regulate privacy sector by sector. And I think this does give you flexibility to treat different types of data with different degrees of protection. And I would personally much prefer a world where my genetic data is given, or biometric data is given a huge amount of privacy protection. And I very much feel in control of how that data is used or reused. And that that data was treated with a greater degree of protection than some temporary shoe browsing data or something like that. And so I think a strength of the current system is that we do have a way now of saying that some types of data do need higher, more stringent privacy protections than other ones. And that makes me somewhat reluctant to even think about a universal rule, which by its nature would start to keep treat all data similarly, which is a little bit more what you've seen within GDPR. Well, great. Thank you very much for doing this. For more on what uh, TPI is doing, go to our website at techpolicyinstitute.org. Thank you. Great.